CinemaSins has a fan club. It's called the Sin Club, and members get all sorts of things like early episodes, bonus videos, merch discounts, and even monthly bonus podcasts. Membership starts at $3 a month, and you can sign up now at patreon.com slash CinemaSins. And he goes, I need you on here on Friday. And I was like, Mark, I can't. And he says, you're meeting Chris Rock. And I was like, I'll be there in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined by Jonathan Watkins from CinemaSins. Hello, hello. And Barrett Scher from CinemaSins. Hi! And today we have a very special guest. It is director Darren Lynn Bowsman, who has done a movie called Death of Me, coming out October 2nd in theaters, VOD, digital. It stars Maggie Q and Luke Hemsworth. Um, Many people out there... uh, may have heard uh, this name from the Saw series, Saw 2, Saw 3, Saw 4. And there was supposed to be a spiral coming out in uh, in May of this year. But then, but then tragedy struck uh, and we had a pandemic and, uh, you know. What? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and uh, now it's, it's being pushed off into the, you know, the, well, we don't know when it's coming out. But I was looking forward to that. It looked like a lot of cool stuff going on in that. Yeah, uh, well, it, it's coming out on May 21st, 2021. So. Uh, all right. Okay. Is, it sucks. It was pushed a year. Uh, but you know, it's not worth going and possibly dying in a movie theater to see it. I mean, I, I love the movie, but maybe not enough to die for it, but it is pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know if you were going to change the tagline. It's a pandemic. It must be Saul, something like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there are some others that, uh, you, uh, that uh, you find people not, might, uh, might know out there. And that is repo, the genetic opera. And, Huge fan here, by the way. <laughs> and uh, the the sort of, I guess, spiritual follow-up, Alleluia, The Devil's Carnival. Uh, yeah. the, these movies are so fun, but uh, I, 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 I kind of want to go over, well, I just named a, you know, just a, a random hodgepodge of movies there, but how was it, uh, what's it like, what was it like being on the Saw franchise? What's it, what was it like to sort of be the breath of life back into the new uh, saw and everything. Just tell us uh, what that experience is like. I mean, I have such a weird um, past with Saw and now future with it or present. So when I got Saw 2, I'd never directed a movie in my life and I was completely out of my element um, in Toronto, having no fucking idea what I was doing or when they were going to realize <laughs> that I was a complete fraud. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, so I did that and then, uh, it ended up well for me and I made a couple more and then I got burnt out. Um, by the time I made Saw 4, I was over it. Um, and I think because it stopped being challenging for me because the crew was so on top of things, the producers were so on top of things that it almost felt like at times if I showed up drunk or asleep or didn't even show up, the movie would still work and it would still be awesome. Um, Did you try it? uh, uh, But uh, so, so I said, you know, I need to step aside and I need to do something that is more challenging and not that Saul wasn't challenging, but again, it was so well 
it, the machine was so well oiled that I didn't feel integral anymore to it. Mm. Um, and, and that's a testament to the crew and the producers and the writers that, they, that it just worked so well. Um, so yeah, I left, I left saw and I said, that was it. I wasn't coming back. And, uh, I was an idiot because I guess you should never say never because here we are, I think 14 years later, 13 years later, something, mm-hmm. uh, I am, I am back, uh, behind the camera, back in the universe with the same producers and a lot of the same crew that, uh, was killing it a decade ago. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it was crazy to come back because again, I, I never thought that I would be on that set again, working with those people. Um, and, uh, it was, it was, it was again, in a lot of respects, just like going back to saw two, because I felt like a fraud and I shouldn't be there. And <laughs> I remember when, when, when I think it was day two, Sam Jackson showed up, Samuel Jackson, and I'm standing on set in between, you know, Chris Rock and Samuel Jackson. And I was like, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> so David Byrne a, moment. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty, it was a pretty crazy, uh, it was a pretty crazy experience coming back. And then, uh, I'm so excited for people to see that movie. It's, uh, it's different yet. It still has so many similarities that, that diehard fans will love, but it's its own unique, entirely different thing. That's really cool. So did Chris Rock actually, I, I can't remember what the story was. Did Chris Rock come to you or? or? No, um, not really. So what happened was um, I think Chris was at a party and uh, he kind of made some offhanded joke to one of the producers that he liked the Saw movies and all they needed was a couple of jokes. And if they had a couple of jokes, <laughs> it would be a whole new audience. And uh, someone said, you know, they, they referenced that and said, well, you should come write one or something. Cut to a few years later, he had a take for a movie that I think he went into pitch Lionsgate and Lionsgate said, you know what? This is really interesting. You should talk to Mark and Oren about this, um, the producers of Saw. Uh, so Chris went in and, and spoke to Mark and Oren and pitched this idea and they were like, holy shit, this is a Saw movie, Chris. I don't know if you realize you just pitched a Saw movie. <laughs> so they, went to, they went to Josh and Pete and then Josh and Pete, the writers who wrote Jigsaw, got together with Chris and they beat out a treatment and then eventually a script for the movie. Now, all this was happening, and I did not know any of this. I was, uh, I was off in my own world doing my own shit. Um, cut to I get a phone call one afternoon, and I'm in New York. I had moved – not moved, but I was in the process of moving to New York um, to do something that I'm really passionate about, which is direct theater. And uh, I was offered an opportunity to direct this huge Broadway production. And uh, so I'm literally this, – this could not have happened. It was the most – crazy just circumstantial serendipitous thing so i i get the offer for this this broadway show and i'm texting my wife and i'm like pack our bags we're leaving we're coming to new york we're moving to manhattan and as i am talking back and forth with my wife who's in la my phone rings and it's mark berg and he goes uh he goes darren what, what are you doing right now and i said i'm in new york and he and it was a long pause and he goes i need you in la <laughs> i said i'm in new york mark i can't just come to la and he goes, well, you need to be in LA because you have a meeting. And I think it was like the next day. I think it was Thursday and I had a meeting on Friday. And he goes, I need you on here on Friday. And I was like, Mark, I can't. And he says, you're meeting Chris Rock. And I was like, I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I, 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 get, I get sent the script on the flight home. I read the script. And uh, it was awesome. It was so different than what I was expecting. It, it didn't feel like a Saw movie, but it felt like a Saw movie at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, and then I, I sat down and Chris and Mark and Orrin and I sat down for breakfast. And by the end of it, I was like, I'm in, let's do it. And so I turned down the Broadway thing and, uh, you know, two weeks later I was on a flight to Toronto. 
Wow. Jeez. How th- how does anything get done in Hollywood? Either it gets done immediately or never, right? There doesn't ever yeah. seem to be like an in-between, like, you know, this went through the normal process of a couple of weeks and then we got this guy on and everything. It's, I always hear stories like this where get out here by within 24 hours, you know? Yeah, no, it's, um, there, there is, the one thing I've learned about Hollywood, there is no, people always ask me like, how did I make it or how does it work? There, it feels like every, every time I do a movie, I'm completely flabbergasted at the process, how it got made, how it was completely different than what happened before it. Um, and uh, yeah, this is this is just like that. This uh, the spiral movie was from thinking I was moving to New York to doing a you know another Saw movie a decade plus later, and in the, in the process of literally hours was was pretty crazy. And then. Two of some of the most unique movies I've ever seen, Repo the Genetic Opera and Alleluia the Devil's Carnival. Uh, do those movies, are those movies as fun to work on as I think that they are? Yeah, they are. I mean, so in both, uh, well, so there's actually a third one in there that you need to watch that's an in-between of those. Which oh, really? Another, yeah, just, just, so the Devil's Carnival was its own thing, and then there was the Devil's Carnival Alleluia, which was a feature version, but there was a short film. When I say short, it was a 60-minute short uh, of a Devil's Carnival before that. So there was one repo and two Devil's Carnivals, and they hmm. are awesome, but... What is not awesome about those movies are is that um, the amount that is uh, on the line making one. So like on The Devil's Carnival, I financed it. And, you know, when you're putting your own money into something, it's awesome because I have the ability to say fuck you to everyone. Mm -hmm. I don't have to listen and I can do whatever I want. But then there's also that thing that if this thing fails, I cannot blame anyone. Like it's it's on me. Like everything is on me. Um. And those movies were all made, in my opinion, as a – I don't want to say um, as an F you to the system because that's – Repo, we all thought was going to be commercial. When we made Repo, it was made by Lionsgate. It was made by Twisted Pictures who made the Saw movies. And I think the intention was this is going to be a huge thing. Um, it was a colossal failure uh, when it was first released. And I mean in, it, was, it, was, it was so horrifically bad as a failure – that there were moments that I believe Lionsgate was going to do me a favor and just bury it and let no one ever see it because it was so bad. Mm. Uh, and they tested the movie when Repo was done, and it tested – for those filmmakers out there, when you finish a film, studios will take it to a, you know, a place where they consider it to be middle America, and they will pull people from every nationality, race, and age, and they will put them in a room, and they will say, judge this movie. And then one of the most important things you look for is the numeric value on – what they give your movie. Would they recommend it? Would they not recommend it? Would they would they come back and see it? All of this. I tested so poor on Repo the Genetic Opera that it was in the single digits. Oh you want to be, be in the 80s, 90s? I think I was like one or two. Like it was so goddamn bad. Wow. Well, and again, part of the reason it was so bad was when they screened the movie, they didn't screen Repo. They screened a director's or an editor's assemblage with no music. So it's a musical, 57 songs. There was a click track in there. So of course it scored terribly. Hmm. But anyway, the movie ends up just tanking. Um, I think my career is over and I fought to get this movie made. Like I literally, you know, I went to war to get that film made. And uh, it was a, it was, you know, it was going to be relegated to the bargain bin at the the, the last few blockbusters that were remaining. 
And I kind of got mad. And that's where my career changed is I got really angry. And I was like, you guys are wrong. There is an audience for this movie. You guys tested a shitty version of it. Let me finish the music. Let me finish the visual effects. Let me finish the cartoons that are supposed to be in it. You're wrong. And so I went into Lionsgate and I said, I believe in this movie, even if no one else does. And I would like to ask for the print back. And because of my relationship with him, uh, John Feldheimer was who was the head of the the studio said, okay, I'll tell you what, you can have the, you can have your 35 millimeter print back and we're going to go ahead and do what we do, which is the DVDs and VHSs and all that. I said VHS. That's how old I am. Uh, So they, they continue to do what they were going to do, which was like put it in one screen or two screens and they gave me the print. And so myself and my, my cohorts started calling movie theaters all across America. We, I think we ended up calling, I don't know, two or 300 and we got 50 to agree to let me four wallet uh, at their theater. And so I'd pay them, you know, some minimal amount of money and I mm-hmm. would be able to collect 100% of the ticket sales. And we got in a van and we started driving and uh, we were probably in a van over the course of 100 days and we four walled it and we built an army. And uh, what would happen, which was amazing, was all these theaters had such a turnout and such a insane fans that would show up. That the, that the theaters would see it and they called Lionsgate and would say, hey, we want to show Repo every week. And so Lionsgate started getting all these calls and one theater turned into five theaters, which turned into 10, which turned into 100. And next thing we know, Repo starts playing every weekend all across America. And here we are, I don't know, 12 years later, 13 years later, and it's still showing uh, you know, throughout, throughout the United States and some places of the mm. world. Uh, you know, at least once a month, sometimes twice or three times a month on double bills with Rocky. And uh, it was awesome because to me, <laughs> it, it was the proving that even bad movies that are considered bad have an audience. You just have to go out and find them. And so we were told there was no audience for Repo. I got mad. I said, fuck you. There is an audience. And we found them. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so Devil's Carnival was our kind of answer to that, where we said, let's bypass all of the studio. Let's do everything ourselves. Let's 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 write it. Let's cast it with who we want to cast, and let's go out and do this thing completely independently. And so when we made uh, Devil's Carnival, that was the intention: was let's do it all ourselves, and we were able to. And it was that was an awesome experience because we were the studio in that respect, um, from the album to the marketing to the promotion to the posters, everything about it was us. And it was awesome to have that type of control. But again, you're banking a lot. That, that it's going to be successful because if it fails, you lose your house. And that's not like a, a normal movie. See, that shows you what, what I know, because when I watched, when I watched uh, these two movies, there's such a loose uh, nature to how, how, how the story unfolds and, and everything. I actually thought to myself the opposite of what you just said, which is, you know, it doesn't seem like there's much on the line to make this movie at all. And oh, yeah. repo was the most expensive at that time. I think we made it for, I'm making, this might be wrong, but it was like 12 or $13 million. It opened in two theaters. I think it made maybe $5,000 opening weekend. No. So it was, it was a huge failure. Um, so you're only as good as how much money you're able to bring in. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, it was huge. Now devil's carnival was a whole different thing because it was my money. And it was, you know, contrary to what a lot of people believe uh, Saw is a very profitable franchise, but I am not a very profitable person in the Saw universe. I'm just the director. I don't own it. James Wan and Lee own it, and the producers own it. Mm-hmm. So, so for me doing Repo, I mean, I put my house up. 
So, uh, or when I did, I'm sorry, Devil's Carnival, I put my house up. So if it would have been wow. failure, I would have lost that. <laughs> wow. Oh you went out there and Rudy Ray moored it. You did the yeah. Dolomite treatment, huh? <laughs> wow. It gives me an entirely new appreciation for that, for that movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's very, those b- both are really fun to watch, but I had no idea that you were guy. I mean, that's doing a high wire act without a net, uh, there, uh, had no idea. Uh, I, yeah, I remember, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Darren. No, go ahead. No, please. I was just going to say, I just, I remember, uh, when, uh, all the repo, uh, talk was going on and I think Brian Collins was probably where I first heard about it. Cause he was writing about it on horror movie a day or. Yeah, maybe a birth movie's death. I can't remember at this point, but um, and I think I talked to him on Twitter about it. I, I did not get to see it in a theater, unfortunately. I can't even imagine how great of an experience that would be. But I'm a huge rock opera guy, and I kind of, I mean, that was probably the first movie of its type in at least 20 years, if not yeah. more, at that point. Um, yeah, and I, that was my inspiration. I mean, I love. Yeah favorite era of filmmaking was from like 1971 to like 1983 mm-hmm. where you had this insane flamboyant over the top rock operas they mm-hmm. were coming out i mean every single year you know from jesus christ superstar to tommy to phantom of the paradise to phantom yeah. or to a rocky horror picture show i mean they, they were just they were to the forbidden zone they were mm-hmm. so just over the top in their flamboyancy that I wanted to make something that was kind of like that which is that no holds barred doesn't give a fuck about anyone type of musical um so yeah the seeing repo in a theater though or seeing devil's carnival was an event of itself and that was what we we tried to do was we tried to make the experience as entertaining if not more entertaining than the movie so when we made Alleluia, it was made as an audience interactive thing not necessarily the movie so we when we were writing the script and coming up with it it was the thought of what happens in the theater was more important to us at that time than necessarily the the subject matter of the movie was. Um, so we designed it as a road show and a carnival. So if you would ever see one of our road shows, uh, it was batshit crazy. I mean, we had high, we had jugglers and X-rated clowns and sword swallowers and uh, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, I want to go to this so bad. Dancing women, and we walk into the theater. It was a it was a R rated carnival that that kind of sandwiched the movie. So you came in and there was thirty minutes of insanity, and then the movie would show. There was an intermission with insanity, and then the movie would end, and then there was more insanity. And we were making it an event that happened to have a movie at it, as opposed to a movie that had an event. The event took forefront to everything, and the movie played during that. Um, so the scene in the theater was such a different experience. So kind of like Rocky Horror, right? Like it's just, it's yes, like a, it's a 180 from watching it at home. And yes, a hundred percent. It was in, in a lot of respects like being in a band um, because we were in a different city every night. We were living on a tour bus and some of the shenanigans that would take place. I mean, it was, I, there had to have been at least five or 10 times that I would turn to my compatriots and be like, are we going to get arrested for this? Like, is this illegal? <laughs> Uh, it was, it was pretty crazy and it got, and I do have some of those crazy, um, roadshow stories that you hear about bands. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever read the dirt, uh, the, oh yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I I mean, we didn't get that bad on anything we did, but there were, there were moments that we really thought we were going to be arrested because when you're on the road for 90 days, 
shit, you just you just lose all grasp of reality and insanity. And there were there were, I remember there was a moment that we flew Barry Bostwick out, uh, <laughs> and Barry Bostwick was joining us on the road for a couple of stops, and we were had a long drive, and and Terrence who, who plays the devil in the movie didn't tell any of us, but we stopped at a, we stopped at a gas station and he bought a shit ton of fireworks and uh, <laughs> we arrived at the hotel and we're checking in and we're always in the CD motels because we're paying for everything. And as we're walking to our door to, to get to the room, I just hear this fly past me and oh. parents had lit all the fireworks in the hotel and they're shooting in every single direction. And within a second, the fire alarms go off. And so all the fire alarms go off in this hotel and I did what any sensible person would do in this situation. I screamed, I ran, I jumped in the car, and I fled. <laughs> uh, cut, to, cut to us hanging out at a bar, like freaking out that we're going to get arrested, and we can just hear police and firemen in the distance. <laughs> and we look out the bar, and there's got to be 15 fire trucks and 30 police and, and uh, just insanity. And the best was, at that exact moment, Barry Bostwick shows up at the hotel uh, after flying in to meet us there, and uh, the, it's, the, the, nothing happened in the hotel except the fire alarms went off, and they heard loud noises. But Barry Bostwick is live streaming at that exact moment on his Instagram, and he's like, <laughs> he goes, "Something's happened. Something bad's happened, and I think it, I think it involves the boys." <laughs> so that, that whole experience was was unlike any movie I've ever been a part of. I'm impressed. Barry Bostwick was uh, was live streaming on Instagram. Like that's yeah, an amazing right. story yeah. in and of itself. I know, <laughs> uh, and that that is one of the greatest thing about those movies. If I got to work with my heroes, um, yeah. as a musical theater fan myself, uh, if you go through the repertoire of people that I worked with on the Repo and the Devil's Carnival films, from you know, obviously Sarah Brightman, Phantom of the Opera, but yeah. Adam Pascal, who, who originated the role of in Rent. Um, to to Ted Neely, who was Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar and still is. He's in his 70s now and still playing Jesus. Uh, yeah. Some some insane heavy hitters in the mm. musical theater world. And yeah, Paul Sorvino, who um, I, you know, right. I'd, you know, I didn't realize I, I should have because he 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 uh, busts out some pipes in Romeo and Juliet. But I didn't realize that he was a trained opera singer. And yeah. That, you know, he's in both of those movies. Yeah, he is. Uh, it's so funny because he is so much like his character God in that movie. It's not even funny. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Paul and I became very close uh, over the years. Of I think we've made three or four different things together now. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is a character of himself, and I love it. <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm really curious before we get off Repo, though. What was working with uh, Paris Hilton on that like? Absolutely the opposite of what you would expect it to be like. Um, That's what I assumed. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, because I've, she, listen, I've never, I've still to this day, I've never said one bad thing about her because for me, she was, um, she was a delight. She, uh, she showed up on time. She came prepared. She knew her lines. Uh, she promoted the movie. She had no entourage and she rolled up her sleeves in moments that everyone else walked away. And I'll give you just one example is that she, um, I was running over uh, one afternoon and the producers cut me off and it was, we were filming and she was there and they basically said, we're, we're stopping this. You're, you've gone over and Paris says, how much over is he? And they said something like $60,000. I forgot. I'm making this number up, but mm-hmm. it, was, it was a lot. And uh, she didn't say anything and everyone went home for the day. And the next, this was like on a Friday and on Monday she showed up and handed the producers a check for $65,000 
And she wow. went out that weekend and did a appearance in Toronto where she gets paid an appearance fee and just gave it to the producers and said, let them keep going. Oh, and, wow. And so like the balls to do something like that, like the, the ability. Um, so she was great. Um, I think a lot of what she is as an act, I think the, you know, the kind of the thing that you see mm-hmm. on TV in the, in, the, in the, whatever on the tabloids, it's an act. It's, it's not the person that I saw. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I've always, I've always genuinely liked her and found her uh, quite impressive. And I think she unfairly gets kind of looped in with, like, lumped in with the Kardashians and um, other reality situations that came after her. I agree. Um, so your new movie, Death of Me. Um, how did you get on this project first? How, how how did you how did you get approached on this? I am a friend, uh, friendly with the producers, uh, Lee Nelson and David Tish, who um, we've been trying for a few years to find something together. Uh, they're genuinely nice guys, and I have a I have an issue of of I, I want to work with people that I like. I don't want to work with people that just can get things made. So um, he came to me and said, we have this project called Death of Me. I read it. Um, it was a much different script at the time. Uh, and it did, it was dealt, it was dealt with voodoo and a lot of <laughs> things that we'd seen before in the voodoo kind of space. Um, I, I got, a, I got, a you know, on board with the project and we started rewriting it to, to try to pull it away from things that we'd seen and set it in a more, I think unique mythology that we had not seen. Mm-hmm. We did some research on it and we found this, this basically story of what's called pillars, which are these back in back, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they would bury women in the sand in the center of these towns as to basically protect the town and bring good health to the town. And there is, there are a lot of legends around the fact that they would do it to pregnant women because mm-hmm. they were the most powerful thing that you could bury. And so reading this mythology, we kind of based it all around that. And we started doing more research into that world. And we found, you know, this, you know, Thailand was such an amazing backdrop to set this in the locations, the locale, the people. So it just kind of all uh, like dominoes falling at that point. And it moved very, very rapidly. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, you shot this definitely in Thailand, right? So where, where's, yeah. uh, what, what, uh, what particular part of it did you, did you film? Yeah. It? So we went to two places. One is called Krabi, uh, which is where you see the Airbnb and a lot of those gorgeous beach shots. Mm. Uh, and the other half of it was shot in Bangkok. Um, okay. And it was, you know, it was a very unique experience, um, very unlike anything I've ever done before. Uh, you know, shooting it guerrilla style, obviously, um, was a was very very intense we we were rushing uh it was probably the fastest turnaround on a movie i've ever done but the elements was something that i wasn't prepared for i mean thailand is one of the most beautiful places i've been but from the heat to the massive mosquitoes to um and the heat i mean caused a lot of problems um so you know prosthetics you're, you're trying to put prosthetics on somebody and immediately those prosthetics sweat off uh you know, so there was there was a lot of production challenges that, that we were faced with in it, but uh, we couldn't have asked for a better location. At first, when you when I started watching this, I was like, okay, this is like the horror version of The Hangover, yeah, because it uh, you know they're trying to reconstruct their steps from the previous night and everything. As you go along, the movie that really dominates this is The Wicker Man. I was yeah. just wondering how much in like, you know, did you, did you set out to 
to, you know, what, how much influence does that movie have over this or, uh, or were you just trying to do a spin on it or is it, uh, what, uh, if I could copy every second of the wicker man. I would. So. <laughs> nice. I love that movie too. It's <laughs> no, amazing. I, I, the wicker man is one of my absolute favorite. It's like the, it is probably one of my favorite horror films ever made for, for numerous reasons. And, and they're definitely, I mean, I'll, I'll, there's definitely not only inspiration, but full on stealing from that movie. Um, the idea that, you know, what I loved about it was the, the town that the wicker man is based. Those are not evil people. They're mm-hmm. not terrible mm-hmm. people, horrible things in their mind. What they're doing is completely justified. They're right. doing it, uh, for the betterment of their crops and their livelihood and their health. And so when you, when you try to reason with that type of thing, it, it's so much more terrifying to me than dealing with a crazy person because you're dealing with people that have children and um, they celebrate and they have love and they laugh. And to me, that is much, much scarier than dealing with psychotic people. Yeah. So I think that that's a huge influence that we took is that when you look at belief in general, um, belief is a scary, fucked up, horrible thing in some respects. What people allow themselves to do based on faith and belief. Wars, death, killings, all of these things, the name of religion and, and what people believe in. And so I think that to take a approach like the Wicker Man does, which is here is these group of people that ever so often there is a sacrifice that has to be made. And that's just the way of life. They're not doing it for evil purposes or nefarious purposes. It's just who they are and how they were raised. And it's a tradition that's been handed down. Um, and so I always found that fascinating because in this culture, in this story that we're telling, um, this is just who they are. It's not horrible. They're not, they're not mean people. This is just what they do to preserve the way of life that they have and to protect the ones that they love. Yeah. And if you, if, if you're, a if you're somebody who just wanders into this world and you hear what they do and you find out, Hey, this hasn't happened, or this is this is uh, someone got healed when they did this, or whatever. How are you ever supposed to tell them that that it's just a coincidence, or if it, you know, or you know, just some kind of you know random thing that you're trying to make, uh, you know, uh, you're trying to make this religion uh, based in fact somehow or whatever? I, I agree with you. It's like so, like for have to have somebody who to have people who don't. Uh, think that they're wrong in any way that they're morally just and and there's no sort of uh you know it's it's black and white to them it is it is way scarier that way but i also love some of my favorite moments in the movie have nothing to do with the organs being ripped out or or eyes being stitched shut it is <laughs> it is the small moments of the the town smiling at her or, yeah, bowing, absolutely. or, bowing or, or hugging her it's mm-hmm. that for, for them that she is this great thing that's come to save their children and to save their elders and to save these things. And I think that that to me is, is, is infinitely scarier um, than, than some of the supernatural elements is that, you know, they, they truly appreciate what she's doing. Um, and I just, I, I thought that was, I think that's a really cool element of this. Right off the bat, when you see the fishermen come up to the, the window uh, right as they're waking up, and you're like, oh, like like Chris said, you know, oh, it's a hangover movie, that kind yeah. of thing. But then yeah. this out of nowhere local who gets the fish, and he's like, hey, how's it going? You know, and they're like, yeah. oh, maybe something's a little bit off from this whole thing. Yeah, and I think that when you rewatch the movie, um, you know, there are a ton of 
nods and hints towards um, that you could piece it together. An example, and again, major spoilers for those that have not seen the movie. Um, if you go back and look at all those characters from the guy handing the fish outside to the taxi driver to the Airbnb, they all have sigils and symbols around the place that that is cult-like, that is following this belief of the thing. Um, you know, the the cab driver has it in his rearview mirror. The the Alex Essos, who is the Airbnb owner, has huge paintings on her wall depicting the same thing, which is the necklace that Maggie is wearing throughout the entire the entirety of it. So it, it's again, it is the belief of this island. And you know, who are we to say that that belief is any more ridiculous than my belief that if my parents are sick, I pray to a god in the clouds to heal them? Um, they both have this kind of supernatural belief to them, and you know, just because we don't believe it doesn't make it crazy. And adding to all of this is just the fact that, you know, I think this is something that, you know, a lot of people can relate to is going to a, you know, a foreign country, not knowing the language. And I, I, you know, I don't think this was probably, I don't know if this was a hard decision on your part or not to include subtitles or not. Uh, but not knowing what everybody's saying really contributes to your anxiety in this movie. Yeah, that was a thing that I said very early on that I, I literally wanted 90% of the movie to be in Thai and only 10% to be in English. Mm-hmm. Um, we decided just just to make it more accessible to not do that as much. But yeah, I didn't want any of the Thai uh, subtitled because again, the idea is you're a fish out of water, you're a stranger in a strange land. And so if Maggie's character and Luke's character could not understand what was being said, then the audience shouldn't understand what was being said. And ironically one of my favorite like behind the scenes kind of in jokes is that everything that they're saying a lot of the times is so ridiculous. If you would actually understand like purposefully. So like the doctor, um, she goes and sees the doctor and the doctor gets into a fight with the nurse and they're yelling at each other. It's like really loud. They're only arguing about what they're having for lunch, not about anything to do with her. <laughs> she is inconsequential. Like they know what has to happen, that she has to take this stuff and she has to be brought up for sacrifice. So they're not talking about her. They're talking about these small mundane things, which again to me is even scarier as well, that she doesn't matter. Like it, it's this argument that we perceive to be about her, but it's actually about something completely different. Yeah. Um. Maggie Q, I feel like is a is someone that is underused in Hollywood. Like I just don't feel like I see her enough. But of course, uh, twice this year I've seen her in uh, island horror movies. Um, but uh, but uh, what is it like working with somebody like Maggie Q? I'm I'm sure it's as awesome as it sounds. Um, you know, it's funny is Maggie is the one person on set that I really didn't get a chance to hang out with at all. Um, Mm. so Maggie's in every single scene in the movie, every single scene. And, uh, she, we shot the movie out of order just to be able to make our dates. And it was, as I mentioned, a very rapid shoot. Um, I think we shot the movie in, I want to say 20 days. Uh, and so since it was shot out of order, her makeup and her deterioration, required her going back to the trailer. I mean, almost on an hourly basis gone for two hours and I get her for 30 minutes. So she was running back and forth between trailer and set so rapidly. So there was a lot of downtime waiting for her. So I became very close with Luke and very close with Alex and Maggie was just insane uh, running from point A to point B 
hoping to get this movie made in time. Mm. So uh, it, it was a it was a kind of weird experience. I've never had that with an actor. Usually you have downtime, you have you know drinks on the weekend, you have all of this. You know, that, one of the things that was it was that was that I really wanted when casting this was I wanted somebody that did not have a lot of baggage, meaning that. They weren't uh, the front page of TMZ all the time and had a bunch of weird kind of baggage with them. And two, someone that could do the role without playing the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a very easy thing to fall into is the victim mentality, uh, that you're a damsel in distress. And I think that Matt's right. presence is, is much stronger than that. Uh, and so she was, uh, she was a great gift for us. Um, also really, 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 really loved working with Luke and Alex Alex, I'm a huge fan of. If you guys have not seen Starry Eyes, which uh, it, she's the star of, it was a horror mm-hmm. film years back. She's fantastic in that. Uh, I've been a fan with her for a long time. Um, and then Luke, who uh, who I am again, he will be in numerous projects to do from this point forward. I just had such a because Luke had a lot of downtime because he's you know he appears in the movie and then disappears in the movie. But he was there the entire time. So Luke and I, you know, would, would, there would be many, many drunken nights, uh, <laughs> you know, in Thailand, uh, which, uh, which was awesome. So it was, it was a really fun shoot in that respect. Okay, cool. Because now, now you've got to do us a favor. You got to give us a flaw with a Hemsworth brother. I mean, there's got to be, there's got to be something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's got to be a weird mole. Uh, um, <laughs> no, and that's, it's funny because, uh, an ongoing joke would be, is that I would always, uh, fire him and be like, can I just get another Hemsworth brother in here? <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, he, he was great. And you know, what's crazy about him is, is he lives in Australia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if you go to his Instagram page and you look at any of his Instagram videos, those are all things in his backyard. So like he has a, a video that he put a couple of weeks ago that it's him in his backyard sitting at the table. And there is a, a huge, huge snake. And it's either a boa constrictor or a python. I'm terrible with what snakes exist in what regions. Eating a bat hanging from his tree. And huh. it's, it's insane. Or he's got like ginormous tarantulas the size of my dogs, like eating apples. Or this, uh, today he posted something. I mean, they're just, they're just the most ridiculous, outdoorsy, like mountain man type of shit that I've ever seen. That <laughs> I would have moved and that would have been enough for me to just never return. And he's, a, he's an interesting guy. I, I really and then, like and then Barry Bostwick is in those Instagram videos as well, right? <laughs> He's the one actually live streaming those videos. <laughs> I, uh, I I I looked over uh, Luke Hemsworth's filmography and I was like, man, this is really the first movie I've seen him in. Uh, the he, he was in Thor Ragnarok and he had that you know cameo appearance that was really funny. But I had not seen him in anything else. He what? So what's the show he's on? Westworld. Westworld. That's right. Um, yeah. So I and, and I've seen. I think I've seen the first season of Westworld. I'm not sure if he was on the first season, but. Um, but yeah, he, I, he's in and out of it. Um, yeah, he's. Uh, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of him. Um, he, again, it's one of those things that I mentioned that I love working with people that that are just fun because movie making should be fun. It's we're not curing cancer. We're, we're doing fun make-believe. And he's such a fun person to be around that like, he's one of those guys that I will cast again and again, just because he takes a job seriously. He comes to set prepared. He's good at what he does. And he's just a fun guy to hang around with. Yeah, there are a couple of favorite moments I have just, uh, not getting into spoilers, but Maggie Q, uh, her, her drunk scene when they're, when we're first seeing what happened to them, yeah, everything. 
I, I now I don't know if she's actually drunk or not, but if she's not, it's the best. It's one of the best drunk scenes I've ever seen. Not yeah. answering that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm not trying to get you to say. Uh, no. She, she's fantastic. And I'm glad you said that about the not being a damsel in distress. Uh, very much following the Wicker Man model of like being defiant. She can do the fucking just absolutely as well as anybody. And by that, I mean, say the word fucking. Like she'll, <laughs> she'll just gear up for it. Like she'll look through a person. She'll be like, where's my fucking phone? <laughs> uh, yeah, she's uh, so great. Very few people terrify me. And she's one of the people that, that actually terrify me because I know she can kick my ass. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've seen her, her TV show where she's just a badass and that, but yeah. she uh, is not someone that you want to piss off. And uh, I think <laughs> you, you, it, 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 you could read that in the, uh, in the movie. The, the script or the, the original edit was a lot harsher with her relationship with, with uh, her husband. One of my favorite movies I was attached to for many years and then I ended up leaving it was the remake of Children of the Corn. And mm. what I loved about the original book, if you go back to the novella, mm-hmm. is they hate each other. The husband and wife in the original novella of it, they oh. do not like each other. Oh my god, oh, it's yeah. like it's just yeah. crazy. And and he he like leaves her for dead. Like like there's moments mm. where they try to fuck each other over and like like put them out as sacrifices to these kids. I loved that idea originally that that Maggie and her husband were not only um, at odds with one another, but did not like each other. And we ended up taking that back considerably in the edit because we wanted people to sympathize. And I think that we, but there, it used to be in the early drafts of the script and even in the first few days of shooting, it was a lot harsher than that. And so we had to cut and kind of uh, take that, take her original kind of um, demeanor to her husband down a little bit in the edit but originally she was she was intense because in the backstory he cheated on her and she was venomous and we had to go in and try to lighten it up because it was just too much but it just showed me don't ever piss off Maggie Keir. Um yeah, I, I have not seen Starry Eyes, but I did see Alex Esso as Wendy Torrance and Doctor Sleep, and uh, yeah, I thought she was perfectly cast there. But uh, what? What? T- tell us more about her because I feel like we're going to see her a lot. Uh, uh, yeah. So she's again, she's one of those down to earth people that um, that has no baggage. She is just she's just cool. She's a cool person, and I think that. That role was important for us because one of the things that we wanted to do was make it would have been very it would have been very I was concerned about being offensive to the point of here's this island that's that's bringing in Westerners and killing them, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't want to make that movie. So we we started talking about how do we cast this in a way and do this in a way that it's not that movie. And so if you go back and look at it, a lot of the the perpetrators of the violence are westerners it would whether it be whether it be alex essos or the the guy at the um the diner or the outdoor beach cafe that are doing this thing so we wanted it to to basically be not a island thing but it is a religion that multiple people believe in um so that it started with that and then we were trying to think of who could play sweet who could play disarming uh, and there's just something interesting to me about alex like uh i just she's an interesting she's she's interesting on camera and uh, I just really, really dig her a lot. And and yeah, she was great as Wendy Torrance. That was that was fantastic. 
<laughs> I, I have seen Starry Eyes as well. I, I I agree with you 100%. That's a that's a great performance. Um, she's amazing. She's next mm-hmm. level in that. Um, I, also, Kelly B. Jones. I I don't think I had seen her before this, and I was she was she was great. She was um I don't know if in, maybe yeah. enchanting is the word, but she just she definitely grabbed my attention um, every time she was on screen. Well, I'll tell you something. I mean, she's she's from Thailand, um, mm-hmm. and. I'll tell you one of the things that was crazy about that role. So as I've mentioned now 15 times, we have uh, we we had such a we had such a limited amount of time to shoot this. And so one of the things that that became very concerning to me is the language barrier. Um, and there was a massive language barrier uh, working in Thailand. And I've worked in, you know, I, I did a I did a TV show in Japan. I did a TV show or I did a movie in uh, Barcelona and having that language barrier slow things down considerably, but complicate that by the fact that most of the people that we are hiring out of Thailand spoke zero English and they were doing a lot of improvising. So originally we cast that role as somebody else and it was somebody that I came in and I met with and she auditioned and she sounded great. And that character had to be able to speak both English and Thai. So she came in, she did the audition, she was fantastic. And, uh, we showed up on set the first day. And on the first day, we tried to change some things around, and we realized right away that she did not understand English, and she oh. would she learned everything phonetically. <laughs> she couldn't oh, wow. do it. And the next afternoon, she had a five-page monologue, and we realized we're fucked. And <laughs> so I quickly called the casting directors, and I said, "I can't. This this actress is great, but she's not going to work for this movie. I can't phonetically have her do a five pages of monologue. It's gonna it's gonna kill us." And they said, we've got this great Thai actress named Kelly. It's Kelly Jones. You got to meet with her. So Kelly came in and she was just fantastic. And mm-hmm. she's got that, she's got such a unique look. She's she's got this very exotic yet yet educated look that I just loved. Um, so yeah, she was uh she was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I love your idea about keeping the uh the Thai language unsubtitled but it frustrates me to no end that we don't hear what the doctor says to her uh, right before a certain event. It's almost like yeah. lost in translation, not knowing what Bill Murray says to Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't know what is going on here. But I guess that adds to the suspense. Something fun about those those scenes, like that that scene with that, that, that doctor and her, all the people you see, I would say 75% of the Thai actors were people we found on the street and people that we found in the little villages and communities around there because they had such a unique look. Um, mm. And it, it, to me, brings an authenticity about it uh, and an excitement about it. And it was such a unique place. Bangkok is specifically is a unique place that, um, that, that where the doctor's uh, place is. I don't know if you remember, but it's on like a dock and there's, mm-hmm. there's like a, that is all real. And that community lives like that where they basically live on the water in each one of these little um, environments they live in and work out of. And so we would go there and I would just find these incredible people and we would say, Hey, do you want to be in a movie? And they would come and they would, we would, they would teach them the lines or kind of what we wanted them to do. And it was, it was that, that was something that would never happen in America. That was a great thing about working in Thailand. Huh. You said, okay, so you've said this several times about having to film it fast and you shot it guerrilla style. Yep. Tell me what that's like. Are you saying that you had to shoot this without permits and stuff like that? 
what are permits? Oh, right. Yeah, I don't know what those are. <laughs> no, it, 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 it's, it's different. It's just different than it is shooting something in America. Um, you're not dealing with the same union kind of restrictions that you would be in America. We would have to have permits kind of, but it's not like it's not like an American permit. Um, mm-hmm. And I, it's so it's so kind of hard to explain, but it, more importantly than than government things, you'd have to go and ask the community and the community would have to agree. And then you have to get two thirds of that community to agree to let you shoot in that place. Um, There was uh, something that I've never had to deal with before, which was a, someone from the government had to actually be on set every single day. And uh, I don't want to call maybe they are a censorship board. I'm not sure what you would call them, but they would basically had a huge book and they would they would open the book as you shot things and they would check the rules and regulations to make sure that what you were shooting was deemed accessible. Hmm. And there, there were acceptable. There was some, there was, there was, there was one moment that we had an issue and uh, it was the scene where that what they're watching on the video where they're having sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was told that we could not do that because it was fornicating in front of a temple. Temple's a holy thing. And we had it framed in a wide shot. We had to change the camera angle to remove part of the temple behind them. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I've never had to deal with something like that, which was, which is absolutely crazy. But regarding the guerrilla style, it was um, Bangkok in particular is was very very hard to to move around in. Uh, the traffic was unlike anything I've ever seen before. Where an hour, if you could be one point three miles away, and it could take you three hours to get there, easy, mm. uh, due to the back to back traffic. So. Um, by the time you would arrive to set, by the time that you were out of makeup, you might only have seven hours to film. Uh, and that would require, you know, get one take, move on and just hope you got it. So it wasn't like spiral where you shoot it until you get it right. It was, you shoot it once and you hope it worked and you move on and you hope you could fix it and post if it didn't work. Oh, wow. Goodness gracious. So you found worse traffic than LA. Oh my God. LA was a breeze compared to Thailand. <laughs> Nobody has ever been happy to get back to LA traffic. And, uh, when I, when I first arrived in Thailand, uh, the first, the first trip out there, uh, the car came and picked us up at the airport and we had a meeting that we had to be at at like six o'clock and it's four o'clock. And I look and I use my maps on my phone and it says it was like a mile, 1.2 miles away. And the driver, uh, said, you know, I recommend you guys get out and walk. And we're like, get out and walk. And he was like, at this traffic, it's going to be three hours easy. Oh my God. And we actually got out and had a walk. So we walked to the hotel a mile, like 1.2 miles. We had the meeting. And when the meeting was ending, that car was pulling up uh, with our luggage. <laughs> it just gotten through. It, it, it's that bad. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. That's, I mean, it's a nightmare, but I bet the challenge of it. Uh, was I don't know was it in it was it at least uh, a little bit fun just the challenge of it or absolutely was... not no, no none. Thailand no the, the experience of getting to shoot in a beautiful place like Thailand and work with the crew was was awesome um, was it fun no because it was it was one of, you didn't have time to have fun it was so the schedule was so hectic and so crazy um, mm-hmm. that the moment you wrapped you got drunk and fell asleep and just. <laughs> Most of the most of the evenings, me crying myself to sleep with a bottle of vodka or, or tequila or not. Um, uh, because it was just so it was so intense, and I also was really sick when we were filming it. Um, I ended up, oh, no. I ended up at the very end getting. I, I thought at the time I got something called dengue fever, which is a mosquito-borne uh-huh. illness. Uh, it was in 
ended up being a parasite that I, I am sure I got out of drinking a pina colada. I got a street pina colada once, which was a bad idea. I should not have done. And um, I started having probably the worst sickness that I've ever had in my life. Cut to me losing 18 pounds in about six days, seven days. I thought I was dying. I actually called oh my, my wife. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is, I, I don't think I'm okay. Um, and that was so so my experience was complicated by this parasite illness uh but you know it was it was an intense shoot but it was also amazing and awesome to be there in the culture and the the landscape and the scenery of what what thailand offered well what do you have next that you can talk about anything that you can talk about at all yeah i've got um the thing i'm really excited about i'm doing right now is i've got a halloween experience um so i for those that don't know I'm huge into what's known or called immersive theater, which is basically theater that you interact with. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie, the game, the, the David Fincher mm-hmm. film, yeah. I do that, um, you know, oh. it, where people sign up and we fuck with their lives no. and 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have hundreds of actors um, and it takes place in the real world. Uh, and so for four years, I've been working on this thing called the tension experience, which is if you Google it, you can read all about it. Uh, it is a extreme narrative that takes place in the real world and you are the star of it. Um, it ended up that I sold that project to the, the Russo brothers who directed a, a little independent film called Avengers. Right. <laughs> I remember that. I, remember, I think I saw that somewhere. Yeah. And they partnered with us on the immersive side of it, and they are setting it up as a live show in Vegas. But my next film that I'm doing is the Tension movie. It's called Tension, hmm. uh, which uh, I start in two months, which is exciting. Uh, but this, this, I every year I do an immersive event. Well, now the pandemic has hit. I didn't want to break that streak, so we're still doing it. It's just online, and it's called. Uh, it's called One Day Die. Uh, and if you want to look for it, you can go to www.onedaydie.com. Um, and what it basically is, is I've partnered with a few magicians who I'm huge fans of. And it is a show that takes place in your home, but we send you a box in the mail. And uh, you get a link and you will watch a 90-minute uh, thing. And you participate with what's in the box, but what's in the box is terrifying and horrific. <laughs> oh, and, my God. Uh, it's so you know you can sign up you can get a ticket for it it's called one day die tickets go on sale tomorrow oh. uh, but the website is up and you can read all about it there so i'm doing that right now uh and then obviously this movie comes out on october 2nd and then uh spiral on uh, may 21st wow so, and for you are a busy you, man my friend <laughs> yeah. yeah and for those of you listening when he says tomorrow that's september 15th because i don't know when yeah. this, this uh, podcast <laughs> is going to come out but uh yeah. but yeah uh, that sounds awesome, man. That sounds like something that's right up my alley, and maybe not at the same time. I'm not sure. I kind of want to. I, I want to experience this in some way. Um, uh, this one is much more accessible than some of the other events I've done. I've done a lot of these events that are very, in, very extreme. Uh, this one is is uh, created to be more accessible uh, and more commercial than some of my more extreme events. 
Well, yeah, I've read, I've read about to, some of the. Sorry. When you get back to doing it live, I know what these guys are getting for their Christmas gifts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I was just, just going to say, I've read about, you know, people talking about their experience and stuff in the past with some of those. And I, I'm one of those horror movie fans that's not really into like haunted houses and stuff. So well, I, I don't know if I have the, I don't know if I have the balls to do it, but it, it, it's, it's not, you know, I've been to a lot of haunted houses and mm-hmm. a lot of haunted houses this could not be more different than that there's no gotcha. mask, there's no blood there's no one jumping out and screaming at you it's not that mm-hmm. it is a literal mystery murder thing that you are oh, oh yeah and you have to solve but instead of watching it you are doing it you are going to the bar and talking to the bartender you are going to the warehouse and looking for clues you are getting in cars with the serial killer who who's so mm-hmm. you are a central character in a real world mystery um that you form relationships with. And these events could take anywhere from four hours to four mm-hmm. months, depending on. Jeez. I, I take that back. That sounds right up my alley. So <laughs> death of me comes out on uh, October 2nd theaters, VOD digital. We'd like to thank Darren Lynn Bowsman for uh, giving us his time. Uh, it, this was an illuminating conversation. I'm very, I'm very happy. We got to talk to mm-hmm. you. So, uh, thank, uh, thank you for coming on today. Great. Thank you guys so much. And uh, that's going to do it for this interview. It's Chris Atkins and Jonathan Watkins and Barrett Share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com.